0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: A new Washington Post-ABC News survey shows fewer than 4 in 10 Americans, 37 percent, say they approve of the way President Donald Trump is handling his job. Almost 60 percent say they disapprove, most of them strongly. Uh, Trump is uh, the only president, dating back to Harry Truman, whose approval rating at this point in his presidency is net negative by 22 points. The next worst was Bill Clinton, who had a net positive of 11 points by this time in his presidency. 65% of survey respondents say Trump has accomplished not much or little or nothing. That's up from 56% last spring. And 43% of all Americans give him the lowest possible rating, saying he has accomplished little or nothing. So here to help us recap, year one of the Donald Trump presidency, he was elected one year ago tonight, is assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, Ryan Hurl, and he joins us now. Ryan, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Donald Trump presidency, or at least year one, has been a roller coaster. Would you agree?
2: Uh, yes, uh, an entirely expected roller coaster ride, I think for most people um, and I think that uh, Trump encountered uh, the kind of difficulties that you would that you would expect to see with a candidate who essentially took over a party as a kind of outsider and who was able to win by sort of a narrowest of margins. Um, there were of course some relatively unexpected things I think sort of the uh, the depth of the, the Russia collusion scandal was a surprise, I think, not least to, to Trump himself. Um, but yeah, his difficulties working with Congress, I think, uh, despite the fact that nominally the Republicans are in control, uh, that was something that's easy to see. And it's also not surprising that Trump has had some difficulties in uh, exercising his duties as president.
1: Um Predictably unpredictable has been a phrase that has been tossed around (laughs) regarding Donald Trump, and I I think it's 100% accurate, because you never know what's going to happen.
2: No, I think that's the case. Um, And in terms of what Trump had to accomplish, or what perhaps he wanted to accomplish going into the presidency, I think there are some different ways of looking at this. I mean, given the numbers that you were just just mentioning a few seconds ago, I think that what certainly Trump has failed to do is overcome uh, his... the the way in which people disapprove of him personally. He has not been able to heal any of the wounds that developed over the course of the 2016 electoral cycle. And I think that even amongst Republicans and perhaps even amongst Trump supporters, I think there is a a real negative side to the way in which he's tweeting, the way in which he handles himself to some degree in public. On On the policy side, leaving aside his inability to get significant legislation passed, I think what has been interesting is that he has been more reassuring to the old guard of the Republican Party. I think both on the foreign policy side, less so on the on the issue of trade, but certainly in terms of his judicial appointments or the way in which Trump is overseeing uh, the administrative state and regulation, I think that he has been uh, he's been reassuring to a lot of the the. Uh, the more uh, traditional Republicans in Congress or whether that's what he needs to accomplish in order to be reelected in 2020 is is a very different is a very different question.
1: We're chatting with Ryan Hurl, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto here on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this week. Has there been anything good? I mean, it can't all be bad at the White House.
2: No, I, I think that well it, it, look this is politics, and whether you think, uh, accept something as good or bad d- depends very much on where you're coming from politically. I think that looking at it from the Republicans perspective, I think uh, Trump's uh, approach to judicial appointment has been an overwhelming success, but what he seems to have done there essentially is outsource the judicial appointment process to the traditional Republican party, so they' they're very happy on that front. Uh, as to other developments, I think that Trump is, is, will have an advantage from the state of the economy, assuming that current trends continue. So there, so what's, what's unusual about Trump, Trump's approval ratings, or lack of them, is that it's at a time when, at least in comparison to the recent past, uh, the, uh, you know, the economy seems to be improving, seems to be doing very well. So that, cannot possibly be Trump's accomplishment no one controls the economy there's no there's no way a, a president can change the course of the economy just by being in office for for a year but i think that he might uh, i think that he might be able to have some advantages from that going into even the 2018 midterm elections there there might be a kind of disconnect here between and i think this is something people don't understand about trump there might be a disconnect between p- individuals personal feelings about trump and the way he presents himself in public and some of the policies that that, that he's he's promoting, um, there's there's no real way to answer that question until we get into further into the 2018 2020 electoral cycle. Um, but I think that Trump is on a still on a, a pretty strong in a pretty strong position uh, in terms of some of the policy positions that he's staked out. Perhaps in terms of immigration reform. Perhaps in terms of trade. Uh, the issue of tax cuts is going to be and tax reform is going to be more difficult because there he seems to have chosen to go with a very traditional Republican approach. And that, the traditional Republican approach is certainly not what brought him to the White House, and it's not clear as if that's what he needs to do politically to remain in power.
1: How is uh, his next three years going to be constructed, because he is um, still anti-establishment, a lot of Republicans uh, are, are not on his side. How are the next three years going to be in terms of uh, doing what he wants to do?
2: uh I think that the general consensus amongst most observers is that at least within the Republican Party the the Trump wing of the party has the advantage has the momentum and it's really the the older uh, Reagan style Republicans I suppose who are going to have to make some adjustments or they're going to or they're going to face a lot of they're going to face a lot of difficulties um, so this conflict within the Republican Party however it's resolved um, I, I think that's if Trump is able to uh, keep his party in the political center, that I think that's as always the case in American politics. I mean, that's going to be a real advantage. Um, but whether Trump has the policy skills to do that um, is, is a very separate question. Uh, you know, when Trump was running for election, he was talking about things such as an infrastructure bill, the kind of policy approach that you might have expected from a centrist Democrat. Well, you don't hear very much about that. Instead, you're seeing the more traditional Republican focus on tax cuts. I think that's probably a risk for, uh, that's probably a risk for the president, uh, his, his inability to redirect the party in that way. So I think that um, one lesson from 2016 is that there wasn't much of a constituency for traditional Republican conservatism. That's why Trump won the primaries, and to some degree, it's why he won the general election as well. And the Republicans are still working that out um Trump's skills I think it's fair to say as a campaigner uh were, were thus far seem to have been vastly superior to his skills as leader of the party as legislator in chief as chief executive
1: We are recapping a year one of the Donald Trump presidency with Ryan Hurl, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto here on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. There have been uh, a number of blunders and he won't obviously admit to it, but there have been some missteps along the way. Uh, whether it 's uh, you know the the uh, carousel of characters in the White House that have come and gone um, mm-hmm. s- some of the false claims, the hundreds of false claims, the Toronto Star has a story uh, a couple of days ago that he has made and <laughs> they 're keeping track of it eight hundred and thirty five false claims it 's an right. average of two point nine a day. Uh, immigration security has been an issue, NAFTA certainly in our part of the world is is really a red light. Uh, he's urged NFL owners to fire players who decide awesome. to protest during the U.S. anthem. Uh, handling of Charlottesville was really a mess. Uh, the Russia-North Korea portfolio is still up in the air. Uh, there have been a number of, of, of things that have not gone his way.
2: Right. I think that's, you know, in addition to what you've mentioned, I think probably the biggest failure of Trump... Uh, and the Republican Party was their inability to have a strategy on health care, you know, to spend so many years criticizing Obamacare and to finally be in a position to find something to replace it and to to drop the ball as it were. that I think is the most significant is the most significant policy failure. And I think that that is uh, you know something you can point to that could that could hurt them in the future. Uh, some of that is is Trump's fault. Some of it is that, there, the the people of the United States um, are of mixed minds about issues like health care. Right on the one hand, people can be dissatisfied with Obamacare, yet still, you know, still have bad memories of the the, the status quo prior to Obamacare. So sometimes, what seems to be a failure is some, is maybe just a reflection of the the mixed mood of the public. Um, on the on the other issues, you know, y- y- it's easy to imagine. Uh, better ways in which Trump could have approached the issues of, say, the the Russian collusion question, and I think that he has certainly has not been able to manage the narrative on that on that story. On uh, foreign policy, I think that it's 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 still far too early to say. I think that one thing you can say is that Trump chose a lot of respected figures in foreign policy um, to, to staff his administration. And thus far, you haven't, there have not been any real disasters on that. I suppose that given his really a lack of experience in terms of dealing with foreign policy, we might set the bar pretty low in terms of evaluation. And the mere absence of a major disaster or a unexpected war means that that's at least a partial success but at some point he's going to have to establish a record you know what exactly have you accomplished what have you been able to do and it's still relatively early but you know the the big we're at the end of the beginning um if he's if he's not able to find uh, find a way to convey to the public what he's trying to accomplish and how he's accomplished it i mean that there he's going to be in great difficulty uh,
1: to that and, and this is probably hard to figure out. I mean, there's not a, a true equation to get an answer to this because we're only one year in. But if his presidency ended today, what would his legacy be? Does he even have one?
2: Uh, I, I, Yes, there would be a legacy in the sense that his election was one of the most unusual things to ever happen in American democracy and maybe just in democracy in general. So I think that the legacy, if it just ended at this point, it would be the legacy of You know, he illustrated the ability of an outsider to um, essentially hack the American electoral system. And I think that that would really point to a great danger of the way in which Americans handle their elections. I think particularly the primary process. We've always known since Americans have been using the presidential primary process, which really only started in 1972, that there was this great danger of a complete neophyte entering into the political system and being able to capture you know, the most powerful office in the nation, if not the world, despite lacking uh, most of the traditional attributes that you would think are necessary. Uh, so now we know this can happen. We weren't sure when it was going to happen, uh, but now it has occurred. So I think if, if the presidency were to end now, I think that would be, that would be the main lesson, that you can, you, can, you can take over the White House You can be, you know, have great difficulty in exercising that power. And I think what you might see later on, at some point, is perhaps some reconsideration of the entire process of how uh, presidents are selected. Or at the very least, uh, in the short term, political parties, whether on the left or the right, uh, whether Republicans or Democrats, are going to take outsiders very seriously, not just treat them dismissively i forget what newspaper it was i think it perhaps it was the huffington post that only covered trump on the uh entertainment pages for about five or six months in 2015 after announcing his candidacy well i think in the future that's not going to happen i think uh party elites are going to find a different way to address more uh radical challenges from outside the party attempts to control the party whether it takes the form of the next Trump or the next Bernie Sanders. Um, and that's uh, so that lesson has probably already been learned.
1: One last question for you. What's Trump's toughest challenge going forward? Is it, you know, uh, dodging the Russian probe and whatever they find there? Is it North Korea? Could it be, you know, a changing uh, house uh, in the future? What's the biggest hurdle he's going to have to, to get over?
2: I think that the main issue that brought Trump to the White House was the issue of immigration. And I think that this is a very difficult issue for the Republican Party to deal with, because on the one hand, they have to show uh, to the core Trump supporters that they're willing to enforce existing immigration policy, that they're accepting that immigration policy is something that is up for debate, that is something that can be challenged, that it can be changed, but it must be done in a way that it doesn't alienate centrist voters, doesn't alienate moderate Democrats, doesn't give in uh, to some of the worst impulses that are there in the public, the, the uh, nativist or, or racist aspects of it that could drive some opposition to immigration policy. So if he doesn't achieve a significant victory on on immigration reform, I think that uh, I, I, I couldn't imagine his chances being very good going forward.
1: Ryan, appreciate the time. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Ryan Hurl, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, reflecting on year one of the Trump presidency. One year ago tonight, Donald Trump shocked the planet and became the leader of America.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Uh, yesterday, very sad day for the sports world as we lost... Uh, A legendary pitcher, former Toronto Blue Jays all-star pitcher Roy Halladay died yesterday after his plane crashed in the Gulf of Mexico. He was just 40. He was a superstar on and off the field. And here's just a a little snippet of his talent on the field.
0: The 1-2 pitch. Hit toward third, Castro has it, spins, fires, a perfect game! Roy Halladay has thrown the second perfect game in Philadelphia Phillies history! He faces 27 batters, he retires all 27! The first postseason game for Roy Halladay. He winds the 0-2, swing and a dribbler out in front of the plate. Ruiz out to get it, the throw from his knees, it's in time! And it's a no-hitter! Unbelievable! Ruiz and Halliday embrace, and the Phillies
1: again celebrate around Roy Halladay. He was uh, quite the talent on the field. That uh, perfect game, by the way, uh, uh, part of that clip, uh, the 20th in Major League Baseball history back on uh, May 29th 2010. Uh, and uh, the no-hitter, uh, also in a Phillies uniform. Unfortunately, he almost had one as a member of the Blue Jays in his second career start. Uh, but Bobby Higginson and the Detroit Tigers made sure it was a one-hitter. And I believe the final score in that game was two-one for the Jays at Rogers Center, which at the time was called Skydome. Uh, you, you've if well, if you haven't heard, uh, you know that Roy Halladay um, was a, an amazing pitcher with the Blue Jays. Uh, he died yesterday in a plane crash. He was flying. Uh, his Icon A5 is the, uh, the name of the aircraft, a two-seater, and uh, crashed into the Gulf of Mexico, and it was confirmed later on yesterday afternoon that uh, Roy was indeed uh, the sole victim of this tragic accident. Uh, I don't want to get too down and too somber, but, uh, you know, at the time it was very much a shock. I mean, he's only 40, just got into flying, his father was a pilot. Uh, but here's a legendary, you know, one of the all-time greatest pitchers in Blue Jays history and and should be a Hall of Famer and probably will be in the not-too-distant future. In fact, just this past summer he was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame alongside Vladimir Guerrero, the great uh, Montreal Expos outfielder. Um, So maybe let's recap some of the life and times, some of the legacy, what Roy Halladay means not only to the Toronto Blue Jays, but to Major League Baseball. Let's bring in Keegan Matheson. He's an MLB reporter covering the Blue Jays and joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Keegan, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. How are you today?
1: Not too bad. Obviously a uh, shocking news yesterday. When you heard, what was your reaction?
0: Well, you don't believe it. Uh, He was so young, right? even to be retired for a few years now, just 40 years old. Um, a person that uh, you know, a lot of people in Toronto still stayed familiar with um, his, his appearances. He was active on social media. He he even did retirement right. You know, he was a, an inspiration of how to retire the right way. He found so much joy and in, in whether it was flying or coaching his kids in baseball, uh, he seemed to be living a great life. So. Uh, you don't believe it. Uh, you, you still don't. And, and to talk about Roy Holiday in a past tense, uh, it's it's uh, strange. Uh, you never wanted it to be this way, but he, uh, you know, there's been a, a great outpouring of love, and you, I think you very clearly see now the legacy that he's uh, he's left, uh, not just in Canada but around the league.
1: You mentioned the retirement. Doc Halliday uh, retiring in 2013 uh, after signing a one-day contract with the Blue Jays, going back to his original organization, and he did so. And he said at the time because you know he had so much success, he owed so much uh, of his success to what happened in Toronto, and uh, you know Mel Queen is a big part of that. Uh, Cito Gaston, obviously, a huge part of that as well, and and a lot of his teammates. So you know it, it was the perfect ending to uh, really what was a fairy tale career for for Roy Halliday.
0: It was, and his career in Toronto was so fascinating. He, he came up as the, the next big thing, as a very young pitcher in his early 20s, and had some early success, and then all of a sudden couldn't pitch. Uh, out of nowhere in his third year, uh, he struggled. Uh, worse than I've you know, ever seen or heard of a pitcher struggling in the major leagues. Went all the way down to the bottom of the minors and rebuilt himself uh, at such a young age. It, it's such an incredibly fascinating career arc that he had here. And then the sustained success that he had in Toronto, not just important from an individual standpoint. I mean, a two-time Cy Young winner, eight All-Star games, that's amazing in itself. But he did it at a time where he was the main attraction in Toronto. Some of those teams were just plain bad. But there was Roy Holiday. Uh, Every fifth day, uh, that was your reason to go to the ballpark. If you were going to come into Toronto from out of town, you tried to book it on a Roy Holiday start because you'd probably see a win. And that sense of relationship with Toronto, I think it went both ways. You know, he belonged to Toronto, but you know, Toronto also belonged to Roy Holiday because he was that one amazing thing that none of the other teams had, none of the American teams had. But Toronto had Roy Holiday, and it was it was always very special. And for that, the longest time, he was uh, you know so loyal to Toronto, which you know, isn't always the most common thing with, with athletes, especially uh, in baseball, where you know, Toronto is Canada's. One team, they stand out for that reason. But he was uh, somebody who really found a home here.
1: The the remaking of his delivery, obviously, you know, saved his career because he was going down a path at a very young age. I mean, we're talking, you know, 23 years of age in uh, in the year 2000, where at the time, and I'm not sure this is still a record, but at the time, the 1064 ERA was the worst in Major League history for a pitcher with 50-plus innings in a season. So he goes down to single-A Dunedin, I mean, not even triple-A, all the way down to A-ball, and with the help of Mel Queen and, and obviously others, and, and reading a couple of books on the mental preparation that goes into being a successful pitcher. It only remakes his mechanics, but uh, reworks his mental frame uh, of mind and becomes the absolute workhorse that everyone thought he was going to be.
0: And it's so amazing that transition back down. It's uh, In modern context, imagine if uh, an Aaron Sanchez, Marcus Stroman, Roberto Osuna, came out this spring and just couldn't pitch and they were sent all the way down to Dunedin uh, in the deep minor leagues it's it's something that's hard to imagine so it's so interesting how that did happen but the mental side that you mentioned is what you hear fellow players bring up so often when they talk about Roy Roy Holiday uh, is how great of a competitor he was and it was a you know a a quiet uh, very focused and concentrated competitiveness that he did have and You'll hear a lot of former players and former teammates say that they've never met, uh, you know, someone with such a strong mental game and somebody who was so dedicated and, and worked as hard as he did. Uh, you know, he had great physical gifts, of course. He was a, a big, tall, six foot six guy. You know, threw great, had a fantastic arm, but his mental game, and I think the you know, which ties into who he was as a person uh, on and off the field. I think that's where. His real strength came from that's what made him great instead of just a really good pitcher and, and that's what really uh, you know, instilled him I think in a lot of minds in Canada.
1: there were some misconceptions that went along with that uh, that, that mental kind of state of mind he was ultra focused you know didn't want to be disturbed, never uh, gave an interview on uh, on the, when he was scheduled to pitch on, on game day and um, some teammates, uh, really took that the wrong way. I think it was Sean Markham, former Blue Jays uh, pitcher, who said that you know you got to walk on eggshells on uh, on game day when Roy is going to be on the mound because uh, he's he's just a, a different person.
0: It was, really was almost a uh, a split personality in a, in a good way for Roy Halladay. With that, he had an ability to flip a switch and go into competitor mode, and then he also had the ability to flip a switch and go into off day mode or. You know, the mode that you saw him living in in retirement, where he's posting pictures with his you know, the, the baseball teams he's coaching and having a great time, there were very two separate uh, identities that he kept. Uh, that allowed him to succeed while also having an enjoyable life. And, uh, you know, there are so many star athletes where you know, the, the old saying is "Don't meet your heroes," and unfortunately, that's true so often, so so often. But with Roy Halladay, I, I think one of the great things over the last 24 hours is seeing the stories people are putting out on Twitter or Facebook of times where they met him in a Starbucks or at spring training or wherever it was, and the time he would take out and spend time with them, ask them where they're from, uh, you know who their team was. And that's so different from the competitor you're mentioning on game day where he was locked in and maybe you would not approach him and try to make small talk, but uh, it's uh, an incredible difference there how he was able to separate that.
1: Keegan Matheson, uh, MLB reporter covering the Blue Jays, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. My name's Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. The only sad part about the Roy Halladay story in terms of his Blue Jays existence is that he never got to pitch in a playoff game, and that would have been great to see.
0: It would have. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, those were some teams where, you know, he was the one attraction, you know, guys like he, Carlos Delgado, Vernon Wells overlapping in there, uh, you know, there were reasons to go to the field, but a lot of times those were Blue Jays teams kind of stuck in the middle, you know, not terrible teams, but really not making a push like they have recently or in the early 90s on either end of Doc's career, and, you know, so amazing when he did finally make the playoffs to throw a no-hitter and have that success with the Phillies, fantastic to see, but It is tough that he did not have the the playoff run over his 10 plus years here, 12 years uh, with the Blue Jays. But, uh, you know, I think he's not just one of the great Blue Jays of all time, you know, when you discuss him right up there with the, you know, the Alomars and all of the other greats, but I think you could make a a pretty easy argument that he was the the most liked Blue Jay in terms of fanfare and and name recognition in the community. uh, He's at the very top, Uh, you know, so it's. It's too bad he didn't have the, the big stage to go on, but uh, I think he did everything
1: else the right way. That's a great point in terms of most like. I mean, how many athletes who have requested a trade from their organization, and, and he did so uh, in, in you know, Roy Halliday fashion, but how many guys request a trade, then when they come back, they get a standing ovation? I mean, th- that list is a very short one.
0: It is. Uh, you know, especially in a, a big market city, if you're looking at the Torontos, the New Yorks, it's... Uh, it it can turn sour very quickly when when a fan base turns on an athlete. And I I think the level of respect was built up so high for Roy Holiday. And at the time when he left, uh, there was almost a a sense of happiness for him, which I, I don't know how often you see that in sports, when a fan base is happy that one of their best players gets to go somewhere else because they kind of realize he's not going to chase a World Series here. And uh, that's extremely unique and, and a testament to the goodwill that he built up uh, with people in Toronto and, and with fans in Canada. But um, you know, it's even rare to have a player spend that many years with a team. Now you see so many players, even the great ones, uh, they'll wear three or four or five different uniforms in a career. But to really spend the bulk and the prime of a career in Toronto, it's... Uh, it's rare, probably not something we'll see as often.
1: Last one for you, is uh, Roy Halladay a Hall of Famer?
0: I think so. He would have my vote. It's uh, so hard to guess now with the voting process and how that all goes, but when you put the, his peak performance, how he carried a team, and then those playoff performances, I think I'd uh, I'd be happy to write that in.
1: Keegan, appreciate the time. Thank you very much for spending uh, some uh, a few minutes with us. I'm happy to. Thank you. Keegan Matheson, MLB reporter covering uh, the Blue Jays, um, sharing some of his thoughts on the passing yesterday of Roy Halliday.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Financial literacy. Earlier uh, this week, it was revealed that all grade 10 students will learn financial literacy skills, finally, as part of their careers course. Uh, This this has been a long time coming. Mentioned my daughter uh, just before the news at 11 that uh, she was pining to have some kind of course to teach her about dollars and cents. And, I mean, she can ask me and my wife, but uh, I'm not going to be that much help to her. We got some debt. Don't follow our pattern. (laughs) Learn some skills that we never learned. You know, our parents never taught me or my brother or my sister, and my wife's the same. You know, money was that kind of taboo subject. How much money do you make? Nah, I'm not going to tell you. Stop asking me these financial questions. Just save your money. That, that was the advice back in the day. Just save your money. Put it, put it in a bank account. Let it get that .000001 percent interest, and then you'll be fine. That was the advice back in the day. Now, with you know record high debt, the discretionary income uh, flying out of your wallet the moment it gets in there, uh, the, uh, th- today's kids, the youth of today, need financial literacy skills because it is getting harder and harder, more expensive, more difficult to achieve financial success. I mean, housing prices aren't going down. Got to live somewhere. School debt, crazy bad. So it's about time that uh, now all grade 10 students, starting next fall, is going to learn about financial literacy let's bring in trisha berry she's the executive director of money school canada joining us here on the bill kelly show trisha how are you i'm great thanks how are you not too bad thanks for joining us oh. what What was the financial advice you got when you were a kid oh i didn't really
3: get any financial. Advice.
1: i know that's the thing no we my
3: generation wasn't exactly informed
1: <laughs> i'm with you i'm in that generation as well and we were we're not told anything other than save your money sock it away well, for what I don't know, you're going to need it sometime. Uh, but finally, I mean, this is a good step that schools, uh, the school system, is is finally taking to teach youth about how to handle their money.
3: Really good, really good step. It's been a long time coming. The integration into the curriculum was first announced in 2009 by Kathleen Wynne, who was then the education minister, and it was promised that to be you know, embedded or integrated through the curriculum for grades 4 through 12 in 2011, which arguably didn't happen in as robust a way as some parents might have hoped.
1: Right. So now in grade 10, they're going to learn about everything from, you know, budgeting, uh, to you know how credit cards work uh, to osap loans i think uh, i think is tremendously important why has it taken it so long though
3: uh, i can't really say i mean the the curriculum review process is extensive and it's you know it, the ministry had a 7 year cycle where they were reviewing all curriculum so each subject would be um, slotted somewhere in that seven year period for review. And I mean, I don't really know. I think that it's just come to a head in terms of, um, you know, the general public saying, excuse me, this isn't happening. We, We, the parents and the people would like to see a dedicated learning intervention for at least for teens.
1: What do you think is going to be the biggest eye-opener for those who are going to be taking this course?
3: Well, I think credit card information is, uh, is going to be the biggest eye-opener. I mean, the youth um, I've interfaced with, which is, I mean, I, I've personally taught more than 10,000 kids about money. So I see them going, aha, what? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? This is what the bank pays in interest, and this is what they charge me on a credit card in interest. And that differential is astounding.
1: So you're seeing the light bulb going off.
3: Oh, I love the light bulb. <laughs> That's why I do what I do. The ahas are what give me joy.
1: Right. Now, are, are some of those kids uh, then entering the financial uh, world because they see uh, the benefits of of uh, what uh, what money can be made?
3: In what way, from in, a career? Point in of
1: terms point? of a career standpoint.
3: Oh, well, from a career standpoint, um, you know, I'm not sure. We don't. I, I focus specifically, or Money School Canada focuses more specifically on personal finance education.
1: Mm, okay.
3: So, from a career point of view, that is done in schools. So we focus on the things that are gaps in the curriculum, rather than rework or reiteration of what's taught. So from a career point of view, I mean, it's shocking to kids to know that if you have a bad credit score, you will never work in financial services,
1: ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned those gaps. So what are some of the biggest gaps that we're not or have not been teaching our, our kids, our children?
3: Well, the biggest gaps are, are really in elementary, if in my opinion. The, there's global, like just a universal agreement that um, – financial literacy education must start early. So to introduce concepts before attitudes and behaviors are formed. Because by grade 10, you've had a part-time job. Your your your, your money habits and, and behaviors are, are somewhat formed. So the ideal part of having a grade 10 program is that your money behaviors and habits can be informed. So that when you're making a choice to put something not necessarily in grade 10 but later in life on a credit card or you're choosing um, to use your credit card for to fund your day-to-day life which is not optimal and we'll catch up with you. Yeah. However, so so those sorts of things I mean I mean being informed is awesome. In ele- in the elementary school, so in grade 4 to 8, the curriculum includes 10 words that are can even be loosely construed to be in the financial literacy arena so from grade 4 to 8 the full curriculum every subject an analysis reveals 10 words and some of them are words like price advertising career which arguably a student would learn regardless of mm-hmm. being in or out of the curriculum
1: so how, how early should we be teaching our kids about money, finances, all that stuff?
3: Well, the learning um, can start very, very early. There's lots of research into um, uh, early development aspects like delaying gratification. So, you know, incre- you know alerting your kids because we are uh, I-want-right-now society. So, it, you know, teaching your kids that patience is a virtue in terms of spending. So um, what do you really need right now? And what can wait? And, um, you know, delayed gratification is key. Because that's where a lot of the impulse spending occurs.
1: That's where you get into those big money trouble items.
3: Sure. And, and that's where, you know, you end up with the giant credit card debt that's you know, um, a buck, two bucks, ten bucks, twenty-two bucks, and next thing you know, it's thousands.
1: Yeah. And, and obviously, I mean, if you're sitting down, you know, an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old or a twelve-year-old, and you're saying, all right, let, let's talk about money, I mean, you're, you're not you're not going full bore and saying, all right, here's the spreadsheets, here's, uh, <laughs> you know, margins and all this other stuff, right?
3: <laughs> oh, that would be funny. No.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's not their world.
3: No, that's not their world. And... Um, Money School Canada offers a program called Moneyest in the School. And we focus on um, plain language education of personal finance vocabulary. So what is a budget? It doesn't have to be complex. It's a plan for your money. Right? Income. Right. is money coming in. Incoming. Expense. Money going out. What's the word all kids know? Expense is. Mm-hmm. So they know if something... If somebody thinks that's a lot of money to spend, that's expensive. So understanding the small word expense, it's just money going out, money you spend. So educating kids on the vocabulary of money is, is such an awesome step forward. The reason being that then the world can teach them. For example, kids who have participated in the Moneyist Workshop know the word deficit. They know the word surplus. Deficit, not enough. Surplus, too much. Mm -hmm. When the Justin Trudeau attack ads were running, Justin Trudeau thinks budgets balance themselves. You know, I'd have a room full of grade four students going, no, they don't. (laughs) Right? Justin Trudeau thinks increasing the deficit is a good idea. No, a deficit's bad. (laughs) So helping kids, I mean, kids can understand more and less. At a very early age Allowance You know And this doesn't have to be new money Um, When I um, I talk to to parents I say think about what you're spending already Understand what you are willing To let your child manage Whether they're physically managing The money and the expense I.e. paying the store And figuring out change Or they're just um, Managing the decision So Operating within a context of finite resources is, is just outstanding. Interesting. So, and what I mean is, hey, little Johnny, you have $5 a week. That's what you have. So you have to make the choices and trade-offs to make that money work for you. Because the purpose of money the, is to get us stuff. That's it. Now or later. Right. The end. So, you know, little Johnny... What stuff is it that you want now or later? So very young kids can be given practice in that arena. It's, you know, um, treats, you know, oh, can I get a kinder egg? Well, if you get the kinder egg now, that'll use up half of the money you have. That means you can't have blah, 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 blah.
1: Right, later on. Yeah, Yeah.
3: exactly. And trade-offs are, are, I mean, we all make trade-offs, adults. That's how we manage our money. If this, not that. If I go, you know, to he- Tahiti on an all-inclusive, I may not be driving a Benz.
1: <laughs> if you're doing both, you're doing pretty well. Uh, our guest is uh, Tricia Berry, Executive Director, Money School Canada. Uh, quick question about uh, the students who are going to be taking this course. Uh, it, it is grade 10. As you said, they, they have kind of a, a foundation of what you know the financial world is all about or how finances work. Are they are they going to be less prone to take after what their parents have done, or is that going to be a hard habit to break? Because they've they've lived with their their parents, uh, and they've done uh, their own money kind of uh, uh, savings or spending. Are they just going to take after whatever their parents have done because they've lived, lived, they've lived with that for so long?
3: I think there's two ways to think about that. Number one, many parents don't talk about money with their kids. Right. So kids. Other than seeing, you know, the mode of payment, so I see with my eyes that you pay with a debit card or Uh a credit card or cash. Parents aren't talking about the trade-offs and the choices that they're making. Very few parents even tell their kids they're saving up for their education. And that is an awesome example of really great money management behavior. Right. I have set a goal. I am working toward it. I put a little something away so that I can achieve my goal by 2020 or 2019, whenever it is you're going to arrive on campus. Mm-hmm. So um, the other way, so parents aren't, aren't talking about it. So the habits that kids see of, or their behaviors, the parental behaviors, aren't necessarily ingrained in, in the child. The parental behaviors that are, that students uh, or kids will adopt is the availability of money. Good point. kids think, no asky, no getty. Yeah. Right? Can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? And, it, and if they, they, they get it all
1: the time, they're expecting it all the time. Right. Yeah. And
3: this is how they then manage their own money. Mm-hmm. I want, I want, I want. Why can't I have it?
1: Maybe we should have a course for the parents, too. <laughs> I do have a course for parents. <laughs> oh, there you actually,
3: go. they called Money Mentors, and it's quite <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so, you know, are they adopting the behaviors? Maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, If someone wants more information on Money School Canada, where should they go? They
3: should go to my website, www.moneyschoolcanada.com, or give me a call, 416-932-1300
1: trisha appreciate the time today thank you very much oh i appreciate your time rick thanks for having me have a good one
3: okay take care bye
1: trisha barry executive director of money school canada moneyschoolcanada.com is the website um great head students good luck uh this is going to be an eye opener take this information and run with it don't bury it away don't uh, doze off in class uh this is going to be a, a, a great opportunity for you to get a heads up on uh, on the financial world and the inner workings of it
0: The Bill Kelly Show,
1: weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.